the CU 2.0 podcast. Consumers don't want a digital bank. What consumers want is digital banking. That's a core belief of futurist Chris Skinner, this regular on the speaking circuit and financial conferences these days. He has a lot of provocative thoughts, and he's certainly going to say things in this podcast that will wake you up, shake you up. In fact, you could say what he really wants to accomplish in his talks is wake up financial services executives. Wake them up to the proper course, the course that will get them to being a digital financial institution. Welcome to the CU 2.0 podcast. This is your host, Robert McGarvey. You know this week's guest, Chris Skinner. Another core Skinner belief is that many financial services executives are going about becoming a digital all wrong. They're not really providing the services that consumers want and need. It's not about offering a mobile banking app. Of course, that's going to be part of it. But to really become a digital financial institution, provide the services digitally that consumers want, you have to reconfigure the whole service delivery system. That's because the present service delivery system was designed to handle paper, handled it pretty well. Unfortunately, as we shift to digital bits and bytes, that system is creaking, groaning, and collapsing in many cases. That's why you need a whole different approach. Skinner relates that at one financial institution, before it embarks on a big project, a big initiative, it asks itself, what would Jeff do? Jeff who? Jeff Bezos, of course. That's a step to thinking really digitally. You don't ask what another financial institution would do. Ask what an internet company would do. Ask what a fintech would do. Ask what the people who really live, breathe, and get digital would do. Now you're on a proper course to becoming digital yourself. Now there's good news here. There's a lot of bad news, but there's good news, fundamentally good news for credit unions. And that's because Skinner believes credit unions, with their comparative small size, are in many cases more fleet-footed more able to adjust to a digital world. And that's something to chew on. It's very hard to turn around a giant financial institution at Wells Fargo and Citibank. Take a credit union, though, and it's much easier. A few locations, not that many employees. Yeah, sure, you got your 50-year-old core system, and he, Skinner does point out that the core systems in many credit unions are older than, than Mark Zuckerberg, which is something to chew on. And uh, in any event, Skinner has good news for you. Listen up, be prepared to be disturbed, be prepared to be mad in places, you'll probably curse at them. That's good, that's good. As long as it gets you thinking, gets you wondering what you too can do to compete in the digital age. One of your blog posts recently, what you said was that we don't want a digital bank. What we want is digital banking. What do you mean and how are many financial institutions falling short of that? Uh, well, what I mean by that is that a lot of banks believe that digital is a channel or an app or it's actually some project they have to implement rather than a fundamental change to the way the bank thinks and is structured around the customer. And the banks that are offering truly digital banking have um, a Amazon-style customer obsession followed by a organizational structure that's digitally connected to deliver the best experience to those customers. It doesn't think about it as a project or as a channel. It thinks about it as the bank. You know, Digital is the bank, and the bank has to be structured around a digital core structure on the internet. So, you know, these days I, I talk about it a lot because there's very few banks that have really transformed to be digital. There are a huge number of banks are investing billions of dollars in doing digital projects and the latter doesn't succeed. What banks would you say have truly transformed? I decided that I'd pivot from people who think I'm a bank basher to being a bank 
Fraser, hundreds of people out there bashing the banks about being stupid and dumb. And I know from experience that most banks are not stupid and dumb. They actually have a lot of intelligent people, but they're struggling because um, they know they have to change to incorporate digital services to their operations, but they don't know what to do or how to do it. And so I managed to write a list which ended up being nine banks worldwide of a decent size that I thought from external observation are doing digital well. And in America, that would be banks like JP Morgan Chase, USAA, Capital One. And decided to reach out and to try and to uh, understand what they're doing, how they're doing it, and what could we learn from what they've been doing. So far in the past year, I've done detailed interviews with about 30 executives across um, all of the world, Asia, Europe, America mainly, uh, and have about 30 things that I've learned from these people in terms of what you have to do to do digital well. And they always start with that question, what do we have to do? And to answer that question, they go and visit Silicon Valley, the Netflix, the Spotify's, the Facebooks of this world. They go to Asia, they visit Tencent and um, Alibaba. They look at all the fintech firms and they go and visit and tour around many of them to see what they're doing. Then they try and implement in terms of the how to do it the sort of structures of organizational design thinking around technology that those companies are doing really well. And my favorite quote, in fact, is from one of the banks I was talking to who said, every time we're thinking about what we need to do next, we say, well, what would Jeff do? And I said, well, who's Jeff? And they said, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> and, and, and that's the thinking that they're trying to build into the business. Makes sense to me. A few years ago, I had a conversation that didn't occur, an off-the-record conversation with a senior, very senior guy at one of the three American institutions you mentioned. And he said when they were building their mobile banking app, he was directing that project. He instructed HR to go out and hire people who developed apps like Angry Birds. And I said, why? And he said, well, those are cool. And I said, well, don't you need bankers? And he said, we have bankers. We don't need bankers. What we need is people who understand that world, and we don't understand it at all. Yeah, and it's, it's still not simple, because even if you go and hire people who are coming from outside banking who understand technology, uh, there was a comment made to me just this week at one of the big conferences uh, that took place in Europe, which is a lot of people in banking and finance and generally are in awe of Stripe and Adyen and some of these very small fintech startups that have exploded into unicorns, and they're asking why. And the answer is that when you look at the businesses that are trying to use their services, like the Ubers, the Lyfts, the Apple Pays, the Indiegogos, the Kickstarters, you know, the list goes on. Nearly all of those businesses are being run by engineers who are designers with code. And they look at the code and they art of the code and how well it's been designed. And that determines who they select. So if you're a bank that's trying to get into an open banking marketplace with APIs, do you have people who are actually the artists developing code who are you know, in their DNA engineers? Or are you trying to do it with people who are just you know, programmers who therefore will always come second rated compared to the, the art of the code? Right. And I, I think one thing you're touching on is that many financial institutions would say, oh, well, we're, we are digital. We have a mobile banking app. We have on, we've had online banking for 20 years. What do you mean we're not digital? And, and you're making the point that it's a cultural thing that goes beyond a few possessions. 
if I understand you right. Yeah, I mean, that is the fundamental point, which is that you know, the banks that have truly embraced digital are changing their organizational structure around the customer and then building a digital design structure around the customer that replaces their existing operations. Because nearly all of the banks that exist worldwide, particularly those in Europe and America, are built on a business model that was designed for physical distribution of paper, you know, passbooks, ledgers, checks, cash. And yet now all of that's been replaced by digital distribution of data. And it demands a very different business model and organizational structure. And so therefore the banks are saying we can delegate this to a chief digital officer or chief innovation officer or a CIO are actually delegating the bank future. And I don't think you can do that. You have to have a leadership team who have embraced the bank's future, understand it and have internalized it and can lead it through the whole organizational change, not just try and give it to someone as a project. Does this tie into why most, the vast majority of American institutions are really upset by and struggle with the concept of real-time banking? Uh, to a large extent, I mean, um, I spent a lot of time you know, working in the U.S. markets. In fact, most of my life I've worked with U.S. technology companies in the American markets uh, and European markets. And what I say today is that we're living in um, legacy economies, particularly Europe and America are very much legacy economies because the infrastructure cemented in place the last century models of physical distribution. And you know, nearly all of the big banks in the U.S. and Europe have systems that were um, designed in the 1970s and are still maintained in the 2010s as the backbone of the, of the bank. And they can't handle real time. They can't handle demands of open banking. Uh, they're creaking at the seams and they're being maintained by people who should be retired. Now, if you look at Asia, um, the African nations, South America, and China and India, you know, you, what you see is economies that are starting with a blank sheet of paper and have actually implemented infrastructure in this century and quite often in this decade that has no shackles of the past and is completely different in scale and vision to anything in Europe or America. Our challenge, I think, is to try and keep up with that. And the specific indictment of the US for me is several things. One is that um, it's just moving to chip and pin in recent years when that's something that was a decision made 20 years ago in the UK, for example. Um, it's just moving to contactless when most markets have been uh, moving to contactless um, at least 10 years ago. Uh, it's still heavily dependent on checkbooks in that um, the only customer I get checks from these days is a U.S. bank, which amazes me because I hate getting a bank check because I have to physically deposit it. And typically it's going to take more than 28 days if it's over $10,000 and cost me more than $300 in charges to get processed. Yeah, in the world of real-time connections globally between everybody, why we're living in an infrastructure designed for a paper-based distribution of the last century is completely beyond me. And America needs to break out of that. Well, I, I don't think America has really embraced chip and pin. I, I have exactly one chip and pin credit card, and that's issued by a Canadian bank, not a U.S. bank. And I, I have it because I wanted a chip and pin card because sometimes that's really useful in Europe. Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to get around America is with a fake bank card and a fake ID. And I've, I've talked, I remember talking a few years ago with a, a top 10 uh, credit union that was doing the core conversion. And I asked what had triggered it. And the answer was, well, the guy who's been maintaining it for the last 30 years is retiring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And yep. no, one else, no one else wants to take the job on. 
Yeah, and that's what I was saying, that, that there's a lot of old systems around that need to be retired, along with the people who are maintaining them. Uh, Reuters came out with a number that um, something like 43% of the core systems of the big US banks are in COBOL. And there's nothing wrong with being in COBOL, but the problem is finding people who can actually understand and, and, and code in COBOL, because um, they're typically over the age of 50. And we have to break out of that. But I don't want it to be sort of America bashing, just as I don't want it to be you know, bank bashing. And I think what's happening is we're seeing the fintech growth specifically fueled out of Silicon Valley and also the rest of the world to say fintech is looking at all the issues of the old bank structures and saying, can we use technology and particularly cloud and open APIs, plug and play code to do traditional banking faster, cheaper and better with technology and take away the strains and the issues of these institutions that are incredibly inflexible because they spend 90% of their technology budgets on just keeping the lights on. Well, I think you see that pretty clearly. An issue, an area I think about is uh, home mortgages, which used to be owned by banks. Uh, credit unions and community banks used to have a really big piece of the home mortgage market. In America, increasingly, that's, that's a fintech market. Why? Part of the reason is that the fintechs say, we can give you a verdict on your application today. Call up a credit union or bank and say, can you, can you, I've been a customer for 30 years. Can you tell me what your response to my mortgage application is today? They'd say, no. Can you tell me by next week? No. By the end of the month? Eh, maybe. <laughs> Call. Ask. And customers want, they want instant responses. And the fintechs say, hey, no problem for 70 or 80% of the cases. And still the financial institutions don't get in gear. They don't say, well, if they can do it, we can do it. I, I can't explain that. Well, again, it's because we typically have the large existing institutions being dependent upon um, last century core systems that were not designed for real time and not designed for the internet. Many of them implemented before Mark Zuckerberg was conceived. Replacing those systems is a big expensive and risk uh, exercise that most decision makers and leadership team of banks don't want to take as a, something on their watch. So they leave it as something for the next person on their watch. And that's been going on for decades, which is why we now have systems that are 40 years old that should have been replaced 20 years ago, but haven't been because people ducked and dodged the bullet. What we're now seeing, however, is maybe three sorts of fintech startups rising. There's those that believe that they can challenge the traditional banks. And in particular, in UK, Europe, and Asia, Australia, we're seeing challenger banks starting to grow quite neatly. And they fall into several categories. But what's interesting about these challenger banks is that the traditional banks say, oh, they're no threat because no one's actually closing their accounts and switching to them. Whereas the challenger banks are saying, no, no one's switching or closing their accounts with you guys. But what they're doing is they're leaving the big ticket billing items of things like mortgages and utility bills and taxes with you. And they're switching all their discretionary spending, their lifestyle spending to us. So we now know exactly how the customer's living financially. And you know nothing about them except what bills they pay. And that's actually a pretty sort of big difference. And it's something that's based upon the fact that if you are living a financial lifestyle and you want to know how you're spending, you need to have real-time analytics in that process. And all the new banks have real-time analytics and services and um, personal financial management processes. And the old banks don't have any of that because they're still based on those old systems of you know, branch-based ledgers. The second form of fintech startup is trying to say, can we take away the pain of old banking and do it cheaper, faster, and better with technology? And these are companies like Square, 
like Stripe and Adyen. And they're the sort of companies that banks will eventually partner with, promote and incorporate into their structures rather than saying that they're a threat. And then there's the third area of the fintech startups, which is actually my favorite area. And it's the startups that are reaching the parts of the world that banks found unreachable. Because when you have a physical distribution structure, it's a very high overhead to service people that are um, financially vulnerable uh, or who are financially illiterate or who are financially requiring services that look after them because they're mentally ill or they're just so um, small ticket items that then the bank will find their profit so they don't bank them. And 10 years ago, you had two thirds of planet Earth's population being unbanked and underbanked today you have about a third and it's you know shrinking all the time because a lot of fintech startups are using the mobile internet connectivity to reach the parts that were unreachable because when you're dealing with digital platforms the cost of servicing someone who only has a dollar is actually no bigger than the cost of servicing someone who has a million dollars from a transactional viewpoint so you're talking about things like m-pesa yeah, I'm sure M-Pesa, but it kind of goes further than that in that, um, as, as I say, p- people who are, were unreachable. I'll give you an example in the UK. So when a lot of people who have mental illnesses are actually financially Ill, Ill as well. They, they have financial problems, maybe as, as a result of their mental illness, or maybe they get to be mentally ill as a result of their financial problems. It's a vicious circle. A lot of the financial problems that people who are um, unwell uh, may be caused through addictions, addiction to alcohol or drugs or gambling, for example. So a couple of the challenger banks in the UK now have profiling on their accounts where if you feel you have that sort of addiction, you know, you're worried about your gambling habit, then you can switch on a button that says stop me gambling and you literally can't use your account to gamble unless you go through a painful, torturous switch that off process that you, you would only do, obviously, if you really felt you had to make that um, bet that day and it's helping a lot of people to overcome their addictions which is actually a great thing and that banks would not you know, banks would not typically focus on that there are some who are doing some services around these so you know hsbc just launched an account for people who have dementia so that if your account has un- unusual activity your kids grandchildren or relatives can be informed that there's unusual activity on your account and say to you did you really open 20 credit cards today mum and, and, and things like that that's cool. That's that's tapping into new frontiers for banking that essentially are extensions of existing technology. Yeah, and that's what I keep banging on about, which is that I'm not actually saying being negative about banks, but I mean negative about banks that are not creative, inventive, and thinking digitally. Um, because I think there's so much opportunity to do so much more than we have, we've ever done cheaply and easily, reaching everybody in the population, not just those that are making us a buck, that gives us the ability to make financial technologies work for the good of society and the good of the planet, rather than just focusing on shareholder return and our, our management bonus. And it's using, I th- I, to me, it's using technology cleverly. I, I know a credit union where they issue lots and lots of $1,000 and $2,000 used car loans. Very few institutions will touch that because it costs as much to originate a $40,000 loan as it does a $2,000 loan. So why mess with a $2,000 loan? Can't make any money on it. This institution does fine because it, it's created processes to automate much of the, much of the transaction. Yeah, and, and if you look at um, Amazon, PayPal, uh, or Alibaba in China, they're providing 
a huge amount of small business financing based on data analytics because they have the data about how those merchants, those small businesses are performing on their platforms. If PayPal, Amazon know um, if, if you're an independent mum and pop store, how well you're or badly you're doing and therefore can prescribe you in real time loans and funding um, on an as-needed basis. One of the things that amazes me, and it goes back to thinking with technology in a different way, is that in China, Alibaba um, provides an eBay-style platform for mom-and-pop stores across the whole of China called Taibao. And these merchants can get um, loans for hours or a few days. And And it's not payday loans. It's literally... I need funding to cover me for $5,000 for the next 12 hours and 20 minutes. And you pay a few cents for that access to that um, line of credit. And it's all done using real-time data analytics. It's really incredible. China is is an economy I don't know that much about, but it seems to me they've done a remarkably quick uh, digital transformation where they went, they skipped over a lot of the legacy stuff and went from essentially cash into digital. Well, that's what I mean about starting with, um, you know, no real legacy infrastructure because China, it does have some large traditional banks that are very big, but equally they've got the internet giants, Alibaba and Tencent uh, and Badu, uh, which, you know, Alibaba's kind of like an eBay, Amazon, um, Tencent's more like a um, Facebook uh, and Badu is like Google. And, um, they're doing amazing things because they just are starting afresh. And so I'll give you an example. In fact, I'll give you a couple of examples. So the first thing is that in 2012, they didn't really have any mobile payments in China. In 2018, 41 trillion US dollars went through mobile payments in China. So from nothing in six years to $41 trillion. In the US, I don't know the current numbers, but I would hazard a guess around 200 billion dollars is going through mobile payments so these guys are looking at you know a size that's phenomenal and the reason is because people just find it very easy it was intuitive it worked and there was great incentives to use it but then the second thing is that they started uh, and alibaba in particular because i know them the best of all the chinese internet giants with technologies that came out of the u.s from oracle microsoft and other providers and they realized that these technologies couldn't support what they were trying to achieve so they developed their own technologies their own databases their own network structures and it's resulted in last year on singles day which is the 11th of november and it's kind of like black friday if you want to think about in u.s context that they on the alibaba platform sold $30.8 billion of goods in 24 hours. They sold a billion dollars in the first 90 seconds, $10 billion in the first five minutes, 256,000 transactions per second, and 97% delivered in less than four days. It's just incredible. And that scale operations, because they're very different to Amazon, in fact, in how they think. So they don't try and control and all the operation of logistics and sourcing of goods and materials they just provide a platform for everyone to connect to make those things happen and it's it's a fantastic story a lot of people say but china you know is all government controlled my answer is yes it is in collaboration with the people's republic but equally we're seeing right now with the discussions around department of justice and um there's warren trying to break up the big American internet giants, that if you don't have them working in co- cooperation with the government, then you have conflict with the government, which is not a good thing. Right. Now, China's two 
too complex to give a, a simple label to. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the things I love about Chinese commerce and finance, the things I hate about the, the country and its human rights. But at, at the end of the day, I'd say if you want to see the 21st century vision of technology and finance, you're far more likely to see it coming out of the countries that didn't have legacy like Europe and America did. And it's not just China, but uh, Mempes that you mentioned in Kenya, the African nations in general, particularly sub-Saharan African nations, South America, you know, Colombia, Argentina, um, uh, Mexico are doing amazing things. Um, Philippines, Indonesia, you know, and it's nearly all the countries that didn't actually have um, people who could access financial networks before because they were physical networks who are now getting inclusion to trade and transact because they're digital networks. It's incredible. And we see that with all kinds of technology, not just banking, where the legacy telephone companies put up, even though it had long since to have, have good utility, nonetheless, they wanted to maintain copper wire. Whereas in parts of the world where they didn't have copper wire phone companies, mobile just took control. Boom. And it worked better. Uh, last topic: yeah. what's the what's the life expectancy? What's the future for smaller institutions? The future for J.P. Morgan Chase is whatever J.P. Morgan Chase chooses to make of it. They, they they can screw it up. I'm not saying it's a slam dunk, but they, they have a lot of options. What about smaller institutions? I I, I mean I, I meet a lot of the credit unions, thrifts, and mutual financial firms around the world. And often they say to me, oh, we don't have the budgets and size of the JP Morgan Chases. And equally, we can't be as nimble and quick as startup companies. And we're very much community-based. So how do we leverage what we have as a community focus uh, and a relationship focus, which has been the traditional way in which most community banks have, have worked? And I, when I hear that, I kind of get that vision of James Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life saying, oh, you know, you've got the loan with Mrs. Jones here. Mrs. Jones has got the money with Mr. Smith here. And, you know, when, when they had the run on the bank, and that's my image of some of the traditional ways in which credit unions and mutuals think about their world. And I think what they have to do is wake up because they've got just as much, if not more, opportunity to do things digitally than some of the big companies like JP Morgan Chase. JP Morgan Chase, 165,000 employees, 220 years of history, uh, $365 billion in valuation, a massive organization that's difficult to switch when you have 2,000 people in maybe a couple of states, and you may have the history, but you've got a great opportunity to renovate the organization far more rapidly and with more agility than the big dinosaur institutions. And not just that, but you can start things afresh. So there's a couple of community banks in the US that um, particularly come to mind, like Radius in Boston or um, CBW in Kansas who are doing amazing things with digital services that they've just focused upon as new opportunity rather than trying to keep just doing what they've always done. Uh, and they're succeeding in making that happen and leveraging that. So you really just need to have a leadership team that um, is buzzing rather than one that's worried, frightened or complacent or old. Well, I think one problem credit unions have is their dependence on outside vendors for technology and the further dependence upon the beneficence of the core system developer to allow the integration of those outside technologies, which has been a continuing struggle. 
Well, I'll tell you a story, which is um, one of the banks that cooperated in my new book is DBS out of Singapore, who have been getting lots and lots of plaudits for being the best digital bank in the world from the media. And I kind of wondered, if, is that just um, you know, lip service? Is, is it hype? Or is, has the bank really changed? And two or three things came out of the meetings that I had there. Uh, the first is that I met the CFO, the head of human resources, the head of audit, treasury, compliance, as well as the IT people. And nearly all of them said to me that you start with customer focus and customer focus is a critical factor in all of their businesses. Uh, in fact, by way of example, I had a, about a half hour conversation with the CFO and she didn't mention shareholder or money or um, profit once. And I, I then had to ask her, you know, how come? She said, well, if you get the customer obsession right and design for the customer right in a digital organizational structure, then the results are delivered naturally on the back of that. You don't have to focus on the results. But the other reason why I mentioned them is that they, when they started their journey, which was 10 years ago, had a massive mainframe uh, renovation project of core systems in place. The large consulting firm and the large technology provider said after three years that um, although the estimate was that it would be delivered in less than five years and cost less than $500 million, it's going to cost more than a billion dollars and probably take 10 years. And the new CEO, P.S. Gupta, said, right, scrap that. And he cancelled the whole project, cancelled all the investment, cancelled the idea of renovating the mainframe, moved everything into a common platform using a small systems provider across all the countries so that every country after five years with the same level with the same providers of technologies and then moved all of that over the next five years into private cloud-based services so they had agility so now 80 percent of what dbs provides from a technology viewpoint is managed through private cloud-based services with a massive agility to scale and change almost overnight, particularly as it's based on the microservices architecture team structures, which if you haven't heard of that, you can learn a lot more from looking at Amazon or listening to podcasts and Googling or reading my blog. But basically, it, it means small teams doing dynamic changes every 24 hours rather than big projects that take 24 months and cost billions of dollars. Well, it's the, the uh, iPhone app thing where how many times do you get an update for an app? Uh, some apps seem to update every week. Some update even more frequently than that. Whereas historically, Microsoft would do a Windows update once every couple of years, basically. It's, it's a whole different rhythm. Yeah, and it's one of, one of my favorite quotes from the Alipay case study um, in China, which is in my book, Digital Human. Um, it's a third of the book. is a case study about what they've been doing. But one of the things they said to me is that they are working on their fifth generation systems architecture. And this is a 14-year-old company at the time that I was doing interviews. So I'm going, so you throw away your systems every three or four years and start again? And they said, yep. And it's for clear reasons why they do that. But when they said that, I'm going, geez, I don't know many banks that have regenerated their systems in the last 30 years, let alone every three or four years. You know, when you're doing digital properly, you've got to have that agility, um, not necessarily to reboot every three or four years, but definitely to be able to change on the fly in the next 24 hours if, it, you know, if, if needs must. Before we go, the CU 2.0 podcast is looking for a few good sponsors to help us spread the word about the digital transformation of credit unions. You could be one of them. Contact Robert McGarvey for details at rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. First come, first served. Again, that's rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. Dot com.
the CU 2.0 podcast.